0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Abbott. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Post. Today, we're gonna to be talking about the potential for future pandemics. And I'm going to be talking with two former heads of state who've been working together on this issue of pandemic preparedness. I'm delighted to welcome Her Excellency Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and the Right Honourable Helen Clark. A very warm welcome to you both.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And a word to our audience. We'd love you to join in the conversation, so please tweet your questions or comments to the Twitter handle at PostLive, that's at PostLive, please do join us. And Prime Minister Clark, I'd love to start with you. you. And uh, the two of you have co-authored a report titled Losing Time. That was three months ago in November that you released it. Where do we stand now? Are people heeding that message or are we in even worse straits?
3: I think we've lost even more time. There are a number of things that have to be done across uh, new governance mechanisms, financing, working out how to equitably distribute global public goods in crises, Uh, like these uh, new legal instruments to ensure that we get off running fast when a pandemic hits and a stronger WHO. All these things are obvious and have to be done, but progress is pretty slow. So
1: that's distressing, brings me to a question. uh presence early for you. Um, you talk about vaccination in this report and say it's not the only mechanism we need in order to address health inequities around the world. What else do we need to be thinking about?
2: Hello, look, before we Hello. go further into that, let me give a reality check. Uh, COVID-19 started at the end of 2019 the Director General of World Health Organization organized an independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response. That started in July 2020 and submitted its report in May 2021. And that report stressed, stop the pandemic was the number one call in the recommendations. We've had advocacy, the IPPR group. With G7, G20, civil society, every organization you can think of today, we stand where we are just as Helen has just said. And the reason for that is global unity and global dynamics have changed the situation. There is not enough political will to be able to carry out the recommendations to stop this pandemic.
1: Yeah, that's that's very distressing and actually does bring me to a broader question. You know, the pandemic came at a time of rising nationalism. Is that coincidental? Or do you think that sense that individual countries are acting in their own self-interest actually precipitated this pandemic?
3: Not only at a time of rising national self-interest, but also at a time of great uh, geopolitical uh, polarisation. And the, the two uh, combined have been uh, really huge obstructions to, to the response. The o- only way we could overcome this pandemic fast was to all act together instead of the most powerful grabbing what they could for themselves. We can't stop this pandemic unless it stops for everyone. And and to cut to the chase of, of, of uh, Ellen Johnson's so key point, of the 10 billion or so vaccines that have been Administered, 346 million have gone to, to Africa. I mean, it, it, it is criminally irresponsible, really, uh, to leave uh, much of a continent unvaccinated if you say you want to stop a pandemic, as most would. So, President Sully, could yeah, you pick on, on, on,
2: on that,
1: that question of
2: vaccination? Yeah, we, we really. While as important as the fascination is, we still need to have other things. We need to make sure that national health systems are made better, better equipped to be able to fight the pandemic. We need to make sure that the supply chain for being able to get vaccines, therapeutics from the manufacturing, uh, to the affected, you know, are improved. We need to make sure that um, intellectual property rights are waived or licenses granted, so that can be manufacturing, particularly in the south, where most of the people remain not fascinated. So that we can get, we can get them fascinated as quickly as possible to be able to to. Achieve the 70% target date has been set to have been accomplished by the middle of 2022. And then there are more than that. There are therapeutics, there are other types of supplies, PPEs, and other things that need to to be done. We need uh, an improved and fully financed uh, WSU establishment. For vaccine manufacturing, we need an independent, reliable financing system. And so all of those are what are needed if we are going to uh, not only stop the pandemic, but ensure that uh, we are prepared to be able to meet the threat of any other coming future pandemic.
1: So, Prime Minister Clark, there's a very striking sentence um, when you in, in your introduction. When you say, if this pandemic cannot, cannot catalyze real change, what will? Talk to me about solutions. Are there countries that are doing the right thing here and are a model for the next step, for looking ahead, for the kinds of solutions we need? And you're talking about?
3: I'd like to think my own country is making a pretty good stab at, at limiting transmission and protecting the health and well being of its people. Uh, but uh, of course, often gets uh, laughed at a bit because people say you're an island and, uh, and it's easier. Well, y- you can make your luck with this. But I think a, a key point is that to stop a pandemic, you have to stop transmission. And that means throwing the whole toolbox of public health measures at it. The vaccine is a critical tool, but you won't stop a pandemic only with a vaccine. You do need to uh, modify behaviors, you need to really systematize the the mask wearing, the Physical distancing to the I- extent that you can, and that that's easier, of course, in some countries than than in others. I, I have a huge concern that the way transmission is being let, left to to rip through, whether it's because of a denial of vaccination, uh, for example, to Africa, or whether it's because countries with a lot of populist ple- pressure on them are just removing all controls, we are cre- creating new opportunities for more variants and. We, I feel like we're a dog chasing its tail uh, uh, globally and not doing the things systematically and in a coordinated way, which would stop
1: the pandemic. So President Sarley, you, you this, publish, this report was published, excuse me, right before Omicron came at the end of November and a variant as, as your colleague was talking about. And after that happened, there were travel restrictions put in place with enormous economic consequences. For South Africa, how can we avoid this sort of fallout um, when a country like South Africa comes forward with needed information for the global community, but feels penalized by the response?
2: I guess I think we need to see the pandemic as more than a health uh, health threat. Mm -hmm. We need to see it at once that uh, has affects health, education. Every aspect of society, that the linkage uh, of the, the effect of a pandemic in so many ways tells us that when we plan any any um, system to avoid having another health threat, we must see it as an all and all something. We must see it that uh, is linked to other sectors. We must make sure that. Uh, their viable so, uh, social safety nets for societies more vulnerable. so... Um. I think we may have lost
1: your sound. And I'll come back because this really does bring me straight to a question, question for uh, Prime Minister Clark. Do we have the structure in place? Do we need a new structure? The WHO, we've just heard uh, from President Sirleaf about the fact that a pandemic is not just a health issue. The main global body overseeing this is primarily a health issue. What would you like to see? Do you see any chance of a new global structure coming in place to provide a solution that can deal with economic, national security and political issues and economic and education?
3: That's what our panel recommended, a package (laughs) of recommendations, starting with governance. Uh, bringing uh, heads of state and government into a governance structure, which would uh, oversee and encourage uh, the international organisations and nations to work together, uh, we did advocate uh, a new legal instrument. Which the wheels are growing, grinding very, very slowly on at the World Health Assembly uh, negotiations. Still, you know, really another two years plus away from reaching any fruition, and there's no agreement on content or, or form at, at, at this point. Uh, critical will be getting some agreement on how to allocate global public goods in the event uh, of a pandemic. And, and as Alan Johnson Sirleaf said, uh, our panel supports the, the TRIPS waiver, the waiver of intellectual property rights in, in the event of a pandemic like this, so that everybody has a fair chance to uh, be able to access the goods and technology required. We need uh, the financing uh, facility, a new facility in place, so that Countries can be supported to prepare for pandemics and supported to respond uh, when when the worst happens. And we need the strengthened WHO, a WHO that can get to the site of of an outbreak immediately, that can publish the information that has, that can act in a precautionary way and blowing the whistle on what it believes uh, is is a something with pandemic potential. So a lot of things have to come together in this package, and at the moment bits and pieces are being picked at. Our panel was the view that the General Assembly needs to support a reform architecture uh, pathway uh, to bring everyone in behind across health, social, economic uh, in, uh, institutions and sectors.
1: And just one follow-up question, how optimistic are you that those measures, those very costly global measures, will actually take effect? <laughs>
3: I think it it needs to be bring to, brought together, which is why we advocated attention for the General Assembly. At the moment, it's a bit here, it's a bit there. You know, G20 looking at finance, WHO on a on a, WHA assembly on a slow track towards uh, some some things. It, it needs a a bigger picture reform push around a, a, a package, and and one is concerned that you end up with lowest common denominator across the areas uh, that our panel advocated for change in
1: i just want to push a little bit more on this how do we get those the the g20 had an estimate of i think 75 billion in costs 15 billion per year needed to make these sorts of changes where is it going to come from where's the political will
3: well well that that's uh, small money really on a, on a global level to prevent a pandemic that Probably going to cost the world 25 trillion, isn't it uh, over a period of years with lost uh, global output. So the, the recommendation we had was from each according to their means to each according to their needs, uh, a sort of standard formula that institutional organo- uh, institutions are funded uh, by internationally. Uh, and it, it, it's not a serious impost to raise the, the 10 to 15 uh, billion a year.
1: President Salif, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about vaccination, because you understand so well these issues across the world. I think the WHO had a target of 70% vaccination by the middle of this year. Is that now realistic in any sense?
2: We must make it. Uh, And this is why we have to accelerate all the efforts to ensure that all of those who have not been vaccinated have the opportunity to do so. The, the inequity uh, that is costing lives and providing opportunities to, it provides opportunity for the pandemic to circulate, to mutate. Unless we meet those targets, unless we're able to ensure that all the other countries have the ability, have the access, then we can be assured that if no one is safe, it, unless everyone is safe, no one is going to be safe uh, with this pandemic. But let me use the let me use also the example of um, the experience we had with Ebola uh, in Liberia. And there we were quite sure that some of the basic things that needed to be done was to ensure full communication, full coordination, full partnership, full leadership. And I think the Covid nineteen has demonstrated. That the women leaders have always have been able to address uh, the pandemic and to find a way to solve it much better because of their ability uh, to be able to reach beyond the normal and 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 place emphasis on where it's needed. Emphasis on people, people like community health workers, uh, front front frontliners uh, who take the responsibility. And so I believe that uh, it's possible for us to achieve those, but it's going to take the effort on the part of everyone. And we need more global unity and cooperation. That is lacking today to be able to have the, um, to be able to take the decisions that I needed, whether by G7 or G20, to be able to ensure that, um, that, the global health that national systems, you know, are, are reformed and improved upon. That the global the- fund has money, COVAX has what it needs, all of those. The money I, I agree with Helen, it's not a question of the financial resources. The global financial system has the resources. And the cost of not being able to Take to turn those resources into stopping this pandemic is going to lead to a much greater cost of having to to be able to address the losses in in uh, um, economic activity, the losses in lives, and all of that. But Helen has I said.
1: Have a follow up question. What is the pathway to that better communication? How can we implement? Is my first part and the second part we're so dependent now on mRNA vaccines. What are the practicalities of delivering that many need refrigeration across countries in Africa?
3: Well, old story, where there's a will, there's a way. And what we've seen is uh, major pharmaceutical companies really uh, obstructing attempts to uh, get uh, vaccination uh, out there and to support, uh, you know, truly uh, regional efforts uh, to to manufacture and and supply uh, so you know I, I have no doubt that with you know real real goodwill uh, you could have the vaccination uh, production centers set set up in africa but e- even as we speak the the news uh, lines are, are running hot with uh, uh, how the uh, attempt to set up the mnr rna hub in, in south africa is being being instructed Look, uh, bottom line to me is that in a pandemic, we, we need a global understanding through uh, the WTO's uh, intellectual uh, property uh, rights agreement uh, that the, this, these rights will be waived in a pandemic and that every effort will be made to have equitable uh, access. Uh, that That's how, in the end, we, we got on top, or to the extent that we have got on top of the HIV uh, AIDS pandemic, it was because countries could access uh, vaccine at affordable costs. And of course you had the Global Fund kick in uh, to raise the money to, to help those who, who, who really needed them, but, but couldn't afford them. So we need that kind of you know, big spirited, big hearted approach uh, on this as well.
2: Well, let me just May ask you just, you, uh, Before yes, you no, go, no. let me just mention the South Africa experience, because Helen mentioned South Africa. South Africa was very effective in bringing together a strong partnership between the public and private sector to be able to address some of the needs of refrigeration and something for the protection of the vaccines. Uh, South Africa coordinated to be able to get AFRA's own center for disease control functioning uh, to be able to start that. and just think about it, South Africa's own scientists uh, when they discovered certain things, they were punished for this. And so we see the, the African experience in addressing this pandemic um, has, has a lot uh, more for what is required because the greater number of the African people have not been fascinated. But I think in terms of effort by Africa to address it. And to use the institutions the best way they could, given the lack of of equity that existed in having them access vaccines, is something that needs to be looked at. That story and how we can use some of those methods that Africa used that can be perhaps uh, applied in whatever systems will be prepared to prevent another pandemic.
1: Prime Minister Clark, I can't resist asking a question that comes to me through what President Saleh just said, which was about women's leadership. You praise your own country, you have a woman leader there. As we look ahead, is there something about the way women lead countries that make this sort of global cooperation possible?
3: What we observed uh, from the earliest times of the pandemics was that by and large, the women leaders around the world did pretty pretty well in in managing their, their national responses. And I I, I put it down to uh, less ego, uh, often less narcissism, uh, generally across women leaders, uh, willing to take advice, uh, to uh, take on board the best scientific and public health information coming through and to act on it. Now, of course, sustaining this right through a pandemic as populations get uh, weary is is not easy. You know, everyone's response has has, has faltered uh, uh, under this kind of pressure. Uh, But on balance, I think uh, history will record that the the women leaders really put their best uh, foot forward. One more point on women, of course. Women and children have been really particularly disadvantaged by this pandemic. For women who depend on ongoing sexual and reproductive health services, uh, not because they're sick, because they're they're healthy women having their, their babies, needing their contraception. These kinds of services have suffered terrible Uh, disruption. And the fallout for women has been great in other ways too. Greater economic uh, impact, more domestic uh, violence uh, uh, recorded, more girls not returning to school. So uh, getting on top of this, uh, putting in place the, the steps that will stop a further uh, pandemic threat materialising into a devastating global pandemic like this. This has to be a global imperative, and to see the the slow progress, the dragging the chain, whether it's get, getting out uh, vaccines or agreeing on new local legal instruments, or the you know, the new governance or financing mechanisms, it 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 really is 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 very concerning. Most panels and reviews have come to pretty much the same kinds of conclusions about what needs to be done, not now, but before as well. But reports uh, tend to languish unless you get out and advocate for them, which President Sirleaf and I uh, continue to do.
1: I have time, I think, for one last question, President Sirleaf, I'd like to ask you, you mentioned Ebola, the scourges that have hit some developing countries and that developed, the developed world has seen far less of. Looking ahead, when we're talking about a future pandemic, do you see the keys to understanding how to tackle these sorts of threats? coming from the developing world?
2: I believe the experience we had with Ebola worked. And even though thousands died, but we were able to stop uh, the disease in record time. And that is because we focused on proper communication, reliable information, communication to the public to be able to address their fears and to assure that their confidence were built, to put the responsibility into the hands of those at the local level that had authority and that knew the culture and the way to be able to get people to get away from the hesitancy of being able to take the remedial measures that were necessary. Uh, And so because of that, I believe those systems uh, have already been researched. And I think we can look at those and see how we use them to ensure that uh, in planning future systems, that those basic methods are taken into account. the IPPR report evidence base, has really gone into deeply, you know, how what we need to do to be able to ensure that we are prepared globally to avoid another pandemic and what's necessary now to take those recommendations and to have um, a meeting of of global leaders to look at those recommendations and to implement them as quickly as possible. I know that uh, WHO has endorsed all. There may be one recommendation for which there's not full consensus, but I think generally those recommendations can stand the test of time and they should be implemented.
1: Thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. President Sirleaf, Prime Minister Clark, thank you so much for joining us with those humbling and enlightening messages.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: you. I'm gonna be back after a short break with Dr. Rick Bright from the Rockefeller Foundation. Don't leave us, I'll be back soon.
4: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
0: Hello, my name is Ruth Umo, editor at Fortune Magazine. Here to chat with me today is Dr. Gavin Cloherty. Dr. Cloherty is head of infectious disease research at Abbott and leads the Pandemic Defense Coalition. His innovative research and groundbreaking clinical studies are changing the way infectious diseases are detected and diagnosed. Welcome, Dr. Clarity.
5: Thank you, it's great to be here.
0: Well, I'm so excited to have you here today as you have extensive background in infectious diseases. You are a scientist and have researched many viruses from hepatitis to COVID-19. What takeaways have you learned from the pandemic?
5: Well, I think one of the big takeaways from this pandemic was a reminder that viruses never sleep um, you know they don't see borders they're 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 always active. they move fast, and I think we have to move faster so you know the, the it's also really demonstrated the importance of global collaboration. Collaborations between different types of partners, between public health uh, institutions private sector, uh, providing ongoing surveillance uh, to help identify uh, new variants, new emerging pathogens, uh, which will enable us to respond quickly. I think it also, you know, illustrates how no one nation, no one organization, no one tool is really going to be enough to mount an effective fight. It showed us that it takes, you know, health protocols, testing, vaccinations. And, and we've learned over the 30 years that we've been hunting viruses around the world that, uh, you know, our, what we know impacts our ability to respond. We can't fight what we can't see.
0: Absolutely. You bring up a great point about the need for ongoing vigilance and surveillance. How then can global collaboration better prepare us for future pandemics and what can we do now?
5: So, I think, you know, really fighting pandemics is is a team sport. Um, you know, nobody wants to live through a- another pandemic like we just have. And, and global collaboration is more important now than ever to help us prepare for future threats. Um, that's why Abbott has launched the Pandemic Defense Coalition, uh, which is a first of its kind, uh, privately led global scientific and public health network that's dedicated to the early detection um, and rapid response to emerging pathogens. Um, a network of Uh, eyes on the ground, always looking for emerging pathogens and also looking at how known pathogens are changing uh, to make sure that diagnostic tests continue to work, that vaccines are not impacted. I could use our example, uh, our partner in, in South Africa alerted us very early and quickly to the Omicron variant, and uh, we were able to rapidly analyze the sequences and, and ensure that our test uh, will work and, and reassure the hospitals, doctors, and patients that rely on our tests. And, and looking forward, the coalition, you know, it is possible that it could identify the next potential pandemic threat. And if someone presents with an illness of unknown origin or an unknown illness, uh, we would be able to rapidly characterize that sample, uh, develop diagnostic tests, enable a response uh, to try and prevent what we're seeing uh, from becoming a pandemic if there are more cases, if things start to emerge.
0: It sounds to me like we will need to rely on scientists, much like yourself, more than ever as we move forward. How do education and training play a role? And subsequently, how is Abbott advancing this goal?
5: That's an excellent uh, point. Uh, You know, from a global health security uh, perspective, we really need to reinforce and build up the next generation of virus hunters that are armed with the latest technologies and techniques and expertise. Um, You know, fortunately, um, Abbott and others uh, are, are actively involved in that. Uh, we're supporting fellowships uh, around the world that are training the next generation of virus hunters, that are providing field-based lab, uh, lab experience and epidemiology training, sequencing, bioinformatics, all of these elements that you have to bring together to mount an effective response. You know, these virus hunters, there's, there's so many viruses, you know, that can, that can infect humans, and, and it's so difficult to keep an eye on all of them. Um, we really need to be able to work smarter and faster um, to leverage all of the technologies that are out there to isolate uh, DNA, sequence it, gain insights. You know, our avid scientists here, right outside my door, um, are, sequen- are, are sequencing and, and analyzing, you know, millions of sequences every day because uh, we need to be ever vigilant to stay one step ahead of the next pandemic.
0: Working smarter and faster is certainly the key phrase. Thank you, Dr. Clarity, for this prescient and deeply knowledgeable discussion.
4: And now back to Washington Post Live.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here. We're talking about pandemic preparedness, And my next guest comes from the Rockefeller Foundation, Dr. Rick Bright. He is CEO of the Pandemic Prevention Institute there. Dr. Bright, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live.
4: Francis, thank you very much. eager to be here and glad to hear the rest of the conversation. It's been a great program you've had so far today.
1: Well, thank you. And a word to our audience, we would like you to join in. So if you have questions or comments, please tweet them to the handle at PostLive. That's at PostLive on Twitter dr bright my colleagues and i have written a number of stories over the last two years about what the end of a pandemic might look like um please tell us what you think a pandemic end looks like and are we heading towards one
4: well i certainly hope we'll see the end of this pandemic soon um francis but you know many people i mean us included are eager to put this pandemic in the rearview mirror but i also think it's really important to remind everyone that most objects, if not all objects in a rearview mirror are often closer than they may appear. And so while we are tracking numbers of cases carefully, where while we're seeing hospitalization cases and even deaths start to decline in, in some places of the world, um, they are still going up in other places of the world. Um, we're far from um, putting this pandemic behind us at this point because there's still a lot of work we still need to do to vaccinate a large part of the world and to bring together the tools and the science and all of the the, um, ability we have to control and manage this pandemic, bring it together in a coordinated way so we can move beyond the crisis stage. So when you ask me what my vision of of ending the pandemic would look like, I believe that SARS-CoV-2 virus is going to be with us for a long 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 time it might be with us forever actually be the forever virus uh, like influenza Um, but that doesn't mean we have to be in a constant um, state of panic it doesn't mean we even have to go through cycles of panic we have made remarkable progress scientists around the world in developing vaccines and therapeutics um, diagnostics we've learned a lot about masks and social distancing um, the challenge however is as we heard your the former um, um, guest on this program just to talk about is getting equitable access to those tools um, making sure that everyone has them where and when they need them um, making sure that testing and test supplies are in abundant supply so we can coordinate when and where and how to test and link Testing to treatment, et cetera. So we have the tools. Uh, we need more. We need to make them more accessible. We need to make sure they're more equitably available. But I believe by using these tools and understanding the virus with all of the data we're collecting, all the genomic surveillance data and other data around the world, we can get a hold of this outbreak. We can manage it. And that is what the end of the pandemic will look like into a regular new normal managing it somewhat like we do influenza.
1: So I want to keep our conversation as forward-looking as possible. And we did just hear, as you said, from two former heads of state about their predictions. What is your view of the role of heads of state in coming months and years when we face future threats, not only from this virus as it evolves, but from future uh, pathogens?
4: Well, heads of states play a very important role. And- I think we've learned from this pandemic though, that it's important to uh, make sure to ensure that heads of states play a balanced role. And I think one of the critical things that we would like to see um, heads of states do better in the future to ensure a a pandemic-free future, if you would, is better collaboration and better communication, better coordination. We saw heads of states behave and respond very differently in different nations across the world. We saw a lot of nationalism. We saw a lot of isolationism. We did see some collaboration as well and coordination, but we need to see much more of that. I think one of the responsibilities for heads of states is that global coordination and collaboration. It's also very important that they set a leadership role for their citizens within their nation and also for citizens around the world. Um, we've learned the hard way um that the leadership exhibited by um heads of states um is is important and 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 also is followed and sometimes is it's followed um in ways that we never anticipated if it wasn't in step or aligned with the science and so we want to make sure that heads of states do have the best scientific information and they lead by example and we are able to translate complex science to better empower and better enable people um, at every level across every nation to be able to play a larger role in a pandemic response as well so there's more of a balance between heads of states and the citizens as well by having access to better information at all levels
1: dr bright i know you're Supremely interested in data collection, my colleague Lena Sun recently wrote a story about wastewater surveillance. How important is that kind of technology going to be going ahead? And what kinds of critical infrastructure investments do we need around the world to enable that kind of monitoring?
4: Well, Francis, we've all learned, um, and especially COVID-19 has, and made it strikingly clear. Um, that our global public health surveillance system has been highly reactive. And unfortunately, by the time a pathogen or a new variant is discovered or detected in a clinical specimen, it's, it's already too late to contain it. It's usually spreading many to many parts of the world. And so there are a number of tools and technologies that have been utilized and, and, and evaluated during this pandemic that have shown great promise. And wastewater is one of those. Wastewater, Surveillance is an old technology, um, I think first uh, started back in 1854 um, and then used in the 1950s and 60s for polio as well. Um, But it's really coming into its own as we use it to track um, and monitor um, the prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 in a community. We've learned that wastewater um, sampling can detect SARS-CoV-2 variants in the community sometimes two to three weeks sooner than a clinical specimen might be collected in that same community and the value of that is not only knowing where and what variant might be in the community but given us that head start of that leadway, we can surge supplies to hospitals in that region who might be anticipating a surge of increased cases and a surge of increased hospitalizations. We can make sure that there are hospital resources and healthcare personnel available to prepare for those surges. We can send um, uh, vaccines and, and therapeutics and ventilators and oxygen supply to those regions. So a number of things that we can do by just having that two to three week warning that a virus or a new variant might be. I'm um, surging in that particular area, and with the wastewater, we can even get down to the zip code level or a community level outside of a school system or, or or a nursing home system to better understand what might be happening at that very hyper local level. Another important thing, though, with wastewater surveillance, as important as it is as it is to know that something is surging in a community, it's also important to know when it's waning in a community. So as we've been seeing in the wastewater systems in Boston, Massachusetts, for example, we saw the Omicron variant going up in the Boston community, which informed us that we need to have better resources available in that community. We've also used wastewater to watch the prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 and Omicron come down in that community. And this information then Added to other data, such as hospitalizations and deaths in the community, are valuable to be able to guide us using an evidence based policy approach on when we might consider options for um, changing or modifying some of the um, public health mitigation measures, such as mask wearing or social distancing or other requirements in the community. It allows us to transition from a light switch approach, such as mask on, mask off, to a more nuanced approach, changing perhaps from mask mandates to recommendations for mask or encouragement of mask wearing in certain areas or communities to titrate those responses so we have more freedom and, and more um, comfort, if you will, um, in times when we know that virus is in a lull versus knowing when to tighten up those requirements and medications when we see the virus might be surging. So wastewater, again, is one of those powerful tools. It's low cost, um, it's non-invasive. We don't have to do nose swabs or or throat swabs. And it can often tell us much more about the community than a few individual clinical samples.
1: So some of the most successful public health uh, implementations have, have been low cost and very widely spread. But just give me a little bit of a blue sky answer. When we see this next, you know, pathogen, whatever it is barreling towards us, heaven forbid, where do you expect the next innovation to come from? Where do you expect to see the surveillance that might prevent the kind of widespread that we have suffered from
2: SARS-CoV-2? Well,
4: it's a great question. And, And, you know, at the Pandemic Prevention Institute that we're establishing at the Rockefeller Foundation, we're focused on data. We're focused on different types of data around the world. You know, genomics data tells us a lot. If we know um, a particular virus or, or pathogen is in a community um, and, is, and is causing an outbreak, it's important to be able to track that pathogen as it spreads. It's important to be able to monitor it as it changes, as it might become resistant to our therapeutics or maybe even evade the immune response to our vaccines. So genomic surveillance gives us a lot of that information. It's also important to think about other types of data, such as mobility data or consumerism data or um, 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 environmental data, for example. All of those are giving us different types of signals that something might be happening in a particular spot or a particular region of the world. And we find when we combine those non-traditional data types with our traditional clinical and epidemiological data, We can be much more predictive about something that might be occurring what's really important though as you might imagine there's lots of data there and it's all in different forms and different sites and different languages in many times so it's important that we build a platform that allows us to connect disparate types of data and overlay those and use a number of modern data analytics i mean we are borrowing um, analytical tools from the financial sector and from other sectors to be able to look at data apply some artificial intelligence or machine learning in different ways but assemble it and and reassemble it in new ways like a deconstructed um, cake for example and reconstruct it in new ways to see what signals might appear that we would have otherwise missed We believe by doing this and enabling others to do this around the world at a very local level and at regional and global levels, that we'll be able to spot these signals and see these signals of impending danger much sooner. And when we see those signals, it triggers a response. So you can speed a response to something that might be occurring or emerging or re-emerging in a region. You can um, trigger the development of vaccines And therapeutics and diagnostics much sooner. You can trigger public health mitigation efforts like mask wearing or social distancing or quarantine much sooner. And by combining those early signals with a faster response, those are how we believe we can stop an outbreak before it gets out of control and becomes another pandemic. And that is what we're focusing on at our Pandemic Prevention Institute. And we're doing that by partnering globally. You know, we don't believe that. We would, it's important or it, it should be a centralized database. We believe this should be a distributed role, a federated role, if you will, um, for people and scientists in every community working in a similar platform locally so they know what's happening in their community and they're empowered to take responsible actions to protect their community, but at the same time, they're connected globally so that local information is empowered even more by global awareness. And by working together at all levels, we can stop pandemics.
1: Dr. Bright, I have a Twitter question that's come in. I'm gonna read it to you from my phone. It comes from Adam Zerder who asks, and it's related to what you were just saying, looking ahead to identifying future threats, including AMR, how good a job are we doing connecting lab and genomic data to human outcomes?
4: We're not very good at all at that right now. It's a great question very leading question. I mean, um, as as we've seen, um, and as I think I've described, there are lots of data around us, lots of data, lots of data types. Um, it was painfully aware in this pandemic, if we didn't already know from AMR and other outbreaks, um, that all these various data types are siloed. Some are coming from academic labs, some come from private sector labs, some come from public health labs. Um, and, a lot of the data are, um, as I said, in different formats or different language codes within the data. And they don't overlap well They don't stack well. Um, clinical data are disconnected from genomic data. So if you, have a, if you identify a novel mutation or variant in a virus or a bacteria, it's very often disconnected from the patient. So you don't really understand the impact of that mutation or that variant on a clinical outcome. A lot of times we have vaccine and vaccination data on efficacy of vaccines, but it's disconnected from the clinical outcomes in terms of which type of vaccine might have been more or less effective in that community or in that person or population. So we need to do a much better job at finding ways to connect that genomic data, which is all about the virus in many cases, to the... Is the so what, as we call it, is it just a mutation or does it have an impact? What does the phenotypic data look like um, associated with that virus or that, that modified bacteria? Is it really a drug-resistant bacteria, an organism, and is it spreading? And one of the things that we're doing at our institute is working with partners to find ways to break down those silos, connect those data in new ways. Believe it or not, there are legal barriers in some cases. Um, There are concerns about privacy, and so we wanna make sure that as we find ways to connect new types of data, that we're we're respecting privacy, we're respecting sovereignty of data as we find it in many countries as well, but we're still finding ways to identify signals in those data types, perhaps even connect at that signal level so we can have those better insights to tell us what's happening.
1: Dr. Bright, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I want to ask you about the mRNA vaccines. They've been the enormous triumph, certainly for this country, um, of the pandemic. They are difficult to take around the country. And now we're learning that they may not uh, last. They might have enduring impact. We may need ongoing boosters. So when you look at this issue globally and you look at future pandemics, how do we address them? Do we need a different kind of vaccine for the rest of the world now? What's the manufacturing challenge? And when you look ahead to future pandemics, are we prepared to come up with universal vaccines or some other approach to pandemics?
4: Well, we're a lot better prepared today than we ever have been in the past because of the technology and the innovation that we've seen in developing vaccine platforms. I believe there's a lot of power and opportunity in the mRNA-based vaccines still. It's an early iteration of this technology it had never been used at this scale and had never been scaled at the the volumes that we've seen. Um, Because it works so well, um, it is an opportunity to continue optimizing that vaccine platform and other similar platforms that may not be messenger RNA, but might be using the same type of vaccine platform concept, such as adenovirus-based vaccines and other um, recombinant-based vaccine platforms. I'm a strong believer in these platforms. Once we've demonstrated that these platforms, such as mRNA, can make a successful vaccine um, that is safe and highly efficacious and protective and protecting people from being hospitalized and dying, and that's what we're seeing with these vaccines, um, we can also see where they need to be improved. And so the duration of immunity is not as long as we had hoped in terms of antibody response, but they're still very powerful and durable in making this strong cellular T cell response, which is what's saving people's lives today. Can we optimize them to make a stronger, more durable antibody response? I believe we can. Can we optimize them to make a more broadly reactive antigen? So a vaccine that will work against more variants of SARS-CoV-2 or perhaps broader protection against all types of influenza? I believe we can. I believe it is the the first step in opening a broad future for utilizing recombinant-based technologies and synthetic technologies such as mRNA and DNA-based vaccines that open the door to other innovations that will make the vaccines not only more durable, we need to innovate them so they are room temp stable, so we don't have that super cold chain requirement that we have with the current mRNA-based vaccine generation. We can make vaccines that can be delivered orally. We can make these vaccines that are delivered through the skin on patches. So we can remove the needle and syringe from the process. We can remove the cold chain from the process. All of these are things that will make these new generations of vaccines more powerful, more accessible, more affordable, and easier to reach into more places that are traditionally harder to reach with the, the first generation of vaccines that require this cold chain um, and storage and, and hard to get into those communities. The future is bright. I'm very excited this technology works. I'm very optimistic about it. I know the scientists are all over it, not only in the US, but around the world. And I believe the next generations of these technologies are going to really open the door to improving access and affordability and thereby improving health around the world from many of the pathogens we're facing today.
1: Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. But Dr. Bright, I want to thank you for leaving us with that very positive and forward-looking message.
4: Thank you, France. It's been my pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening.
2: For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.